Okay, so this will be the first lecture on Japan, and we're going to cover more or less a similar period uh, as we did in the previous lecture on Korea, uh, namely roughly the period 1600 to 1800. <clears throat> in Japanese history, this was a period of unprecedented peace, and for a time at least, it was also a period of unprecedented prosperity. The two and a half centuries of peace and stability under the Tokugawa family is especially remarkable, given that it came out of the resolution of the so-called warring states, or Sengoku period, which was characterized by essentially chaotic, every-man-for-himself warlordism, and immediately preceded the Tokugawa period. Uh, I teach a number of other classes that deal with the Tokugawa period in greater depth, so I'm going to just sort of sketch out uh, enough of a picture of the era to fully understand the dramatic changes uh, that came to Japan after 1850, and also the reasons that uh, for a lot of Japanese, the Tokugawa period has become, uh, at least, again, in that sort of popular imagination, uh, Japan's once upon a time, this sort of halcyon golden age of authentic, pure Japanese traditions, all in scare quotes. Uh, Carol Gluck, who is a, an American historian of Japan, memorably called this era uh, the one that, quote, became not only a historical time, but a cultural space, a repository of traditions associated with Japanese distinctiveness. And to be fair, this can be both positive and negative, depending on the level of confidence with which Japan sees itself vis-a-vis -vis the world at any given time. In other words, when Japan is feeling good about itself, the Tokugawa period looks awfully good. Uh, and when Japan is feeling not so great, the Tokugawa period correspondingly looks not so great. Politically, the Tokugawa order was characterized by a system of hierarchical alliances subordinating weaker military rulers to the Tokugawa family, which consolidated power in 1600 uh, with a victory in the Battle of Sekigahara in northern Gifu. Uh, it's important to note that this is not a dictatorship. Rather, it's a balancing act in which the Tokugawa family works very hard to keep their friends wealthy, close, and happy, and their enemies impoverished, distant, and not unhappy enough to seriously consider open armed rebellion. The Tokugawa period uh, saw the uh, land divided up into 250 domains called Han, and they varied widely in size, uh, in their local natural resources, and other conditions. The most important detail for our purposes is that with a few notable and, for the Tokugawa at least, ultimately disastrous exceptions, the domains that were further away from the capital, uh, Edo, which is now modern Tokyo, were poorer to begin with and suffered economically under Tokugawa policies that were designed to, deliberately uh, to maintain the status quo. Tokugawa Ieyasu, who is the victorious general at Sekigahara, uh, immediately after that victory set about cons consolidating a stable political order with himself at its apex. The result was a system in which Ieyasu and his heirs ruled through a hierarchical web of alliances with weaker military rulers around the archipelago, as I've already alluded to. Among the key dicta that uh, determined Ieyasu's uh, political philosophy and more or less remained in place over the next two and a half centuries uh, you know, with his descendants, were the following. One, 
he required the daimyo, the lords of the domains, to swear loyalty to him. Two, he forbade them from making alliances between each other, including through marriage, as was often done. And three, he declared that each domain could only have one castle. Now, on the other hand, and again, that sounds very dictatorial, very authoritarian, but on the other hand, as the historian Andrew Gordon has noted, the fiscal autonomy of domains was a significant limit to Tokugawa power. In other words, uh, it is a limited form of rulership. And some of that is really just about whether you have the technology to carry out an authoritarian dream or not, uh, and the power to do so. And the Tokugawa definitely did not. Uh, they're a pre-modern, you know, it's a pre-modern polity. Uh, you can't expect them to have modern uh, capabilities for surveillance and, you know, logistics and whatever. In any case, Ieyasu's grandson, Iemitsu, consolidated and more or less finalized the shape of Tokugawa Japan uh, very early on in the 1630s. Following in his grandfather's and father's footsteps, he continued to weaken the daimyo and increase the relative power of the Tokugawa family. He did so through a ruthless and one might say Machiavellian set of power plays that included redistributing 20% of the total arable or farmable land in Japan at the time. He did this to favor his allies and punish those who had stood against his grandfather at Sekigahara. He also, and even more famously and determinatively, I think in some ways, instituted a system of alternate attendance. Uh, the, the phrase for this in Japanese is sankin kotai, and it is almost definitely the single most important long-term factor in the development of Tokugawa era society, so of course we're going to come back to that in detail later. The political sentiment, excuse me, settlement of Tokugawa rule and the combination of political and economic measures taken to ensure stability resulted in a kind of core periphery system. In other words, there was a, a nested arrangement in which the urban cores of society, Edo, Osaka, etc., enriched themselves by absorbing human and material resources from the towns, the provincial cities, the outlying regions. In other words, in the increasingly complex and productive Tokugawa economy, cities were the magnets for commerce, and the towns, roads, and seaways were the nodes and arteries of economic life. The villages provided most of the raw materials that were consumed and processed, and this economic system, uh, at this very macro level at least, bears an uncanny resemblance to modern capitalist world systems, uh, in other words, capitalism after 1500. The first century of Tokugawa rule, 1600 to 1700, is most remarkable for economic and population growth. Uh, this perhaps is not surprising. The longest ever peace in Japanese history settled over the land and people began to reap benefits. As I've suggested, sort of hinted at, this was a, a really especially welcome change from the rapacious free-for-all that had preceded the Edo period. Uh, you know, it was called the Warring States period for a reason. During this time, Japan became highly urbanized. Indeed, by the end of that first century under the shoguns, Edo was probably the largest city in the world, and Japan was probably the most urbanized society on the planet. Predictably, uh, the cultural life of both city and countryside were often vigorous and creative. 
I want to think about uh, four features of Tokugawa society as proposed by the eminent and now deceased historian of Japan, Marius Jansen. Um, this view of Japan is a little bit simplistic, but it's useful enough. Uh, and again, it's for our sort of very broad general purposes here. I think it's worth quoting Jansen at some length. Uh, in his book, The Making of Modern Japan, he wrote that, quote, the first distinguishing feature was the sheer scale of urban growth. The political measures that forced samurai to take up residence in castle towns and cities resulted in the concentration of the elite in administrative centers throughout the land. They in turn required the presence of service trades, and thanks to that, the cities and castle towns speedily became local, regional, and national centers of manufacture, trade, and commerce. By the turn of the first century of Tokugawa rule, virtually every domain had close to one-tenth of its population in such an urban center. Second, the system of alternate attendance transformed the upper reaches of the samurai elite into a circulating or rotating service class and built a never-ending round of travel and preparation for travel into their lives. Hostels and business enterprises sprang up along the main traveled roads to service and profit from that travel. In response to the demands of the Edo government, a communications network developed. Edo became the nerve center of the country its stories and concerns diffused by every procession that filed out of the walled estates to return to its point of origin. Third, this had a telling effect on domainal, uh, domain, regional, and national economies. The urban centers with their large populations required food, raw materials, and constant reinforcement of their numbers. Daimyo needed to sell part of the rice tax their agents collected. Greengrocers had to scour the countryside for supplies and peasants needed the urban waste to fertilize their fields. From village to domain, Japan became less self-sufficient and more attuned to exchange. Fourth, the interaction of regional with metropolitan culture speeded the development of a national culture. The system of alternate attendance acquainted the thousands who traveled with the state of affairs in the provinces through which they passed, providing a basis for comparison and evaluation they returned home with the goods and learning they had acquired at the capital. Metropolitan center teachers of everything from swordsmanship to Confucian learning came to have disciples in the provinces and attracted students who could come. The descendants of the Sengoku Daimyo became by degrees urban aristocrats who prided themselves on their mastery of the arts of tea and calligraphy. So it's a very long quote with four parts, um, and I want to make just a, a comment or two on it uh, to give my own spin on this, so to speak. So two things. Uh, first, I think that, you know, and, and I did say this before the quote as well, but it's worth reiterating that probably the most salient feature of Tokugawa Japan is the Sankin Kotai, or alternate attendance system. Uh, not only did it give us delightful historical trivia, such as the fact that uh, guard posts in and out of Edo had signs admonishing guards to, quote, beware of women going out, guns coming in. Uh, but it also dramatically shifted the power balance between the Tokugawa and other daimyo, and also literally and figuratively changed the landscape of Japan in many fundamental ways. Second, uh, the last thing that Jansen mentions is the idea of a sort of national culture. And this is a bit controversial, not least because Japan was not, in the eyes of many scholars at least, a nation in a meaningful uh, modern sense of the word uh, during the Tokugawa period. 
Nevertheless, I, I want to say that at least from where I'm standing, Jansen's point is quite well taken. As integration occurred at all levels and in many aspects of Edo period society, uh, political, economic, etc., both the reality and sense of a shared experience and identity did, it seems, begin to spread beyond the ruling classes. Though, on the other hand, there's little evidence that it trickled all the way down into every village and hamlet. Sankin Kotai played a huge role in these changes. So again, I think it's the most important thing to remember here. <clears throat> the idea of rule by status is often considered to be a defining feature of Tokugawa Japan. From around the middle of the 17th century, uh, the story goes, following a model of occupational class distinction which had originated in China, the Tokugawa rulers classified their subjects as uh, samurai, farmers, artisans, and merchants. And that's in a roughly sort of, well, it's in a very obviously descending order of social uh, importance and uh, virtue. The samurai became a hereditary ruling class and they were afforded significant privileges. Um, it has been argued, though, that in practice, Japanese society was really divided into samurai versus non-samurai. And so artisans and merchants were often collectively called townsmen or choni. Artisans like farmers were recognized as critical to supporting the ruling warrior class. Merchants, on the other hand, were reviled. Now, of course, these categories, and I think it should be fairly obvious if you think about it a little bit, fail to encompass all of the inhabitants of the Tokugawa uh, society. So beyond those four main categories, uh, there, you, know, you could think of any number of other sort of categories, but there are a lot of, for example, uh, small outcast groups, the Hinin and Eta, and that, uh, there's those, so there's two and there's, uh, there are other groups that are left out here, right? Um, it's worth asking why those other groups are left out. Uh, the imported Confucian concept of the four estates, so that sort of uh, samurai, farmer, artisan, merchant, did not reflect the social reality in Japan, as Marin Ellers has argued, but rather it was a metaphor for society as a whole, as a harmonious, hierarchical body of people contributing to the common good on the basis of their occupation. So essentially, it is, you know, this sort of neo-Confucian uh, view of the world as one defined by hierarchical and, and reciprocal, uh, in many cases, relationships. The reality on the ground was much more complex than this schematic description allows. As Ellers continues, the people of Tokugawa Japan were organized not into four estates, but into a countless number of small, occupation-based groups of mostly local range. These groups did not necessarily relate to each other in a hierarchical way. So there were separate statuses for uh, daimyo versus samurai. There was also nobility versus, you know, non-nobility. There were villagers, merchants, artisans, priests, prostitutes, outcasts, Ainu, and each of these had their own laws uh, and their own relationships to the Tokugawa rulers. And also those could vary substantially by location as well. So this is a complex system, and it was the result of separate settlements made between Tokugawa, uh, the Tokugawa shoguns, and society's constituent groups. And for this reason, uh, rather than the sort of four, uh, you know, traditional estates that, you know, the, the four traditional status groups that people talk about, some of the other settlements uh, are quite interesting to think about. So, for example, the daimyo. 
They were both the important allies and most threatening foes of the Tokugawa because they were originally just daimyo themselves. The shoguns adopted both traditional and novel policies to enhance their authority over the feudal lords and their domains. As noted above, and among the actions that would have been recognized by any feudal leader, Iemitsu, the grandson of uh, the, the dynast dynastic founder, we don't really use that word dynasty, but whatever, uh, Ieyasu, dispossessed a large number of unfriendly daimyo, reducing their lands or transferring them to less desirable estates. As I said, about a fifth of Japan's farmland was redistributed to help Tokugawa allies and disadvantage Tokugawa foes. Some confiscated lands were granted to relatives uh, or Tokugawa family retainers to establish them as daimyo and increase their holdings. Other lands were kept as Tokugawa house domains. The Tokugawa estates included the most prosperous lands and incorporated about a fifth of the area of Japan again, including the largest cities of Osaka, uh, Edo, Osaka, and Kyoto. Now, at the risk of repeating myself here, I want to, again, sort of emphasize that across Japan, friend and foe alike, uh, daimyo were made to swear loyalty to the Tokugawa. They were forbidden from concluding alliances with each other, uh, including through marriage, and they were limited to one castle per domain. The Tokugawa also dispatched inspectors to make sure the daimyo were in compliance with these rules. So while the daimyo re retained fiscal autonomy, the Tokugawa system of Sankin Kotai strategically weakened them a great deal. The samurai, too, were corralled and controlled to the extent possible. They were declawed, if you will. Hundreds of thousands of warriors had been mobilized during the Warring States period. And in this new peaceful era, they represented a dangerously destabilizing element of society that needed to be quickly and effectively managed. So the samurai were resettled in the cities. They were given bureaucratic civil service jobs and stipends from the government. And this slowly, but surely, transformed them from warriors into bureaucrats. It severed them from the land, which had previously been the source of both revenue and identity for the samurai, weakening their connections to place and strengthening a sense of sort of shared identity as samurai under the Tokugawa. Over time, most samurai turned in their swords for brushes and their local identities for a shared one. They came to occupy a theoretically privileged but often quite confined position as a hereditary elite that managed the business of both the Tokugawa regime, uh, the so-called bakufu, and the individual domains. In some ways, this elite class, which comprised roughly 6 or 7% of the total population of Japan, came to occupy a position not unlike the Yangban of Korea that we discussed last time, or the civil, ser civil servants, the civil bureaucrats of China, who will appear in a future lecture. The Tokugawa settlement with town and city dwellers was mostly bureaucratic and as a rule rarely extended in practical terms into the villages. As Andrew Gordon noted, in important ways, the Tokugawa government stopped at the village gate. In the 1630s, uh, under Iemitsu, the, shogun's, uh, institute, the, the shogunate instituted a system requiring commoners to register with a Buddhist temple at birth. This family register system was designed as a tool of political and social control, but in reality, enforcement was never terribly strict. In practice, instead, the bakufu and domain governments really kept out of the internal affairs of villages, as long as the villages paid their taxes. And the bakufu collected taxes not from individuals, but rather from each village as a whole. And the village, in turn, retained collective responsibility for, maintain for managing internal affairs, maintaining order, and delivering criminals to the bakufu or other domain authorities. 
So the four status system, uh, such as it was, and again, it was more sort of a, a metaphor, as Martin Ellers has noted, uh, was, it was abolished in 1869, one year after a coup d'etat, uh, which we refer to as the Meiji Restoration, brought down the Tokugawa regime. At the time, Japan's total population was about 30.1 million. Um, of these, samurai constituted a bit less than 6.5%. The lower three classes, uh, that was roughly 90%, a little bit over 90%. Outcasts accounted for another 2%. Miscellaneous others, uh, the nobles, the monks, the nuns, the prostitutes, etc., uh, accounted for one point one and a quarter percent or so. In addition to uh, Samkin Kotai, to alternate attendance, you will often hear uh, people talk about the idea of Sakoku, or the idea of the closed country, or seclusion, uh, to describe Japan. And this is true both in Japan uh, and abroad. Undoubtedly, you will hear this phrase thrown around. Uh, and as I've said, by both Japanese and non-Japanese. And it's used to De depict the Tokugawa regime as this sort of isolationist, chauvinistic, almost platonic I ideal of the homogeneous island nation of the social imaginary. And this is nonsense. Worse, it's baldly Euro Eurocentric nonsense. Uh, as the Spanish historian David Mervart has shown, uh, the term Sakoku is actually a translation from Latin by a Japanese scholar attempting to translate into his own language reports by a German named Engelbert Kempfer. So the so-called sakoku or closed country policies instituted in the 1630s, and they did exist, uh, restricted the interaction of people in Japan with Europeans. So from Kempfer's perspective as a German, there was some truth to his observation of the regnum clausum, the Latin phrase he used to mean closed kingdom and that was then translated as sakoku in Japanese. Uh, on the other hand, Japan remained quite open to exchanges of goods, ideas, and to some extent people as well with its Asian neighbors. Nevertheless, it is worth thinking about why the sakoku idea uh, has had such staying power. Primarily the edicts issued by Iemitsu in the 1630s, which imposed some travel restrictions on Japanese and vice versa, uh, restrictions on Westerners uh, entering Japan, were focused on banning the import of guns and Christianity. Uh, both were seen, and as it turns out, rightly, as threats to Tokugawa hegemony. English, Spanish, and finally Portuguese traders and missionaries were forced to give up on trade with Japan altogether, uh, as well as proselytizing, preaching to the people. So, after 1639, when the Portuguese are kicked out, only the Dutch remained. And even the Dutch were isolated uh, on the trade outpost of this little artificial island of Dejima in Nagasaki Bay, way, 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 way far away from everything else. The Dutch were content to keep their religious ideas to themselves and focus only on trade, unlike the Portuguese. And, and this specifically, it's the Franciscans, not the Jesuits. And so there's different types of Portuguese, but... Uh, the, 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 the important point is that the uh, Dutch were allowed to stay because they decided to uh, not to preach and the Portuguese were kicked out because, well, they had become persona non grata in previous years. Uh, and from the ruler's perspective at the time, 
issuing these edicts meant that the Tokugawa were ousting Westerners who insisted on promoting Christianity. And the problem was that Christianity as a religion had proven itself quite spectacularly to be a political threat. There was a major rebellion by Christians near Nagasaki in the 1630s. And this was evidence that if you let people become Christians, well, then their loyalty is to this Christian God and the church or something that isn't the Tokugawa. So the Tokugawa still welcomed some Western trade in goods and ideas, uh, specifically uh, to the extent that they could legitimate and assist in Tokugawa rule. And they continued to cultivate foreign relations in Asia, except, as noted, to forbid private travel abroad. So official missions still went back and forth. Economic and political relations with the Ryukyu Kingdom, in other words, with modern Okinawa, uh, with China, with Korea, all of these, for example, continued and were in fact quite important to the Tokugawa. Um, it's true, and perhaps this is a partial explanation for the continued persistence of the Sakoku myth, uh, because myths are, after all, what Rudyard Kipling called just so stories, that these measures did sharply reduce Japanese ties to the West for over 200 years, between the 1630s and the 1850s. And critically, this was a revolutionary time in European history. It was the era of the industrial and bourgeois revolutions and the colonizing of the new world. So Japan was isolated not from the world, but mostly from the West and these developments, uh, including the uh, colonizing of the new world and the industrial and bourgeois revolutions. So when American envoy Commodore Matthew Perry sailed to Japan in the 1850s, he presented a dramatically new conundrum to Japan. I want to return to Sanking Kotai for a moment. So this purported seclusion of Japan, the long, long period of relative isolation from the West, began in the same decade as Sanking Kotai, which, as I've argued before, was the most important policy for integrating Japan internally, and there I'm following scholars like, Mar uh, like Marius Jansen. In short, this was a highly effective system Kotai was, of strengthening the Tokugawa regime and financially draining the daimyo. The daimyo were required to spend alternate years in residence in Edo. That's why it's called alternate attendance. And there, they could be surveilled by the bakufu, by the shoguns, unlike when they were back in their home domains. Not only were the daimyo forced to spend large sums traveling with their entourages and maintaining you know, suitably magnificent and elaborate residences in, in Edo, you have to have your mansion, uh, to perform your class identity and to show that you are a, a powerful and uh, a powerful figure with authority and money and people who believe in you, etc. But then when the daimyo return home to their domains, they have to leave their wives and children behind as I think the, whether you choose to say guests or hostages tells you which side of the equation you're on. The massive parades of daimyo retinues crisscrossing the archipelago fundamentally altered the landscape. Large-scale constant movement required a support infrastructure for both overland and maritime travel. An extensive road system, essentially a pre-modern superhighway system of a sort, linked the provinces to Edo. Two main roads linked Edo to Kyoto and then Osaka, uh, the Tokaido route along the sea uh, through modern Nagoya, where we are now, and the Nakasendo Trail through the, central, uh, through the mountains of central Japan. Other spokes radiated in all directions from Edo to points north south and west. You really can't, can't go much further east, uh, although there were roads in that direction as well. 
To accommodate this unprecedented blitz of travelers, networks of inns sprung up. By the late 18th century, travel was so common, even for ordinary Japanese, despite restrictions that did exist on the books, that it spawned and supported a substantial publishing industry, offering maps, travel guidebooks, and other books for travelers. There were even travel board games and more in this sprawling edutainment com complex. One 1810 travel guide offered 61 precautions for the novice traveler, many of which really haven't lost their relevance today. And so I want to give you uh, a, a bit of advice from 1810. Should you befriend, befriend someone while on the road and travel together for two or three days, do not share lodgings with him, nor exchange food or medicines, even though he seems to be an honest person. Money for travel expenses should be kept in a purse tied around your waist. Remove a small amount needed for the day's expenses and carry it in your bosom. But remember to do this without being observed, even at night. The author also helpfully included advice on how to avoid motion sickness when riding on a horse or in a palanquin, uh, and also provided this very detailed list of things to bring on a journey. Here we go. Ink and brush case, folding fan, needle and thread, pocket mirror, notebook for keeping a diary, comb and hair oil, but razors should be borrowed from the inn at which you are staying. They, offer, they also offer hairdressing services, and so before you pass through checkpoints or castle towns, be sure that your hair is not disheveled. Paper lantern, candle, flint and steel set, and fire sticks. Even if you do not smoke tobacco, you must carry these. Inn lanterns are prone to go out, so you may need the sticks unexpectedly. Your personal seal. A copy of the impression made by the seal should be left at home, so those staying behind can verify the authenticity of any written requests you may send. The seal, moreover, will be necessary when you exchange silver or gold during the trip. Two hooks and some rope. These will prove priceless treasures if you take them along. There was also, for example, advice about hiring pack horses, which crowded the roads along with travelers and, and goods, uh, moving those goods across Japan. Shipping was more economical, especially for long hauls, which led to a flourishing coastal shipping industry. However, overland cargo transportation was still necessary and made extensive use of the road network, which I've referenced uh, before. Especially for the daimyo, moving themselves, their retainers, and the massive amounts of things required to support their needs also required mobile or remote access to some form of currency to pay for expenses both along the journey and away from home. And the daimyo collected taxes in rice. Uh, you can no doubt imagine that this is not a particularly convenient substitute for cash. So this problem spurred the development of a very advanced banking and financial sector that dealt in credit and eventually even widespread commodities speculation and all the risks and rewards that go with such a system. The development of transportation and banking networks, the massive and constant movement of people, goods, and ideas, and the increasing sharing of space and experience that these developments brought were responsible for what Jansen called the development of a nation, nascent national culture. Japan was integrated, as Jansen has argued, as never before, both physically and to a significant if lesser extent, socially or culturally. I also want to think about the villages here a bit. Um, as mentioned, the villages enjoyed a considerable amount of autonomy. They were also essentially corporatist in the sense that the entire village was assessed for taxes. So 
village headmen, uh, elders, they were responsible for dividing up the burden among the villagers. And then as a whole, the villagers were left free to manage their affairs and to produce for the market, as long as they met the village's basic obligations of rice tax. I should say also, sometimes it wasn't rice, but that's the sort of standard unit. Agricultural output rose dramatically during the Tokugawa period. In the 1700s and early 1800s, production in some areas doubled over a 50-year span. The reasons for this are complicated and include the development of more productive rice varieties, slight improvements and better diffusion and use of existing technology and techniques, improved irrigation, but also improved literacy and education. Educated samurai, as well as some priests and farmers, including quite a few women, began to offer classes to country people at unofficial schools, many of which were held at Buddhist temples. By the early 1800s, as many as half of Japanese men and one in five Japanese women are estimated to have been literate. And that's a rate that would have made Japan perhaps the most literate society on the planet, certainly in the very top echelons. And this high literacy rate allowed the creation and dissemination of manuals, of how-tos that recorded successful agricultural techniques. And these manuals were in wide circulation from the 17th century. In other words, as elsewhere, literacy created possibilities, possibilities to more efficiently gather, preserve, share, acquire uh, knowledge that improved the quality of life. And this was true beyond agriculture, of course. So these factors that I've been discussing, extended peace, increased travel, improved transportation and logistics, the availability of education, literacy, improved agricultural yields, etc. All of these helped to make 18th century Japan, the 1700s, not only probably the most literate urbanized society on earth at the time, but also, and correspondingly, one of the culturally richest, at least in the cities. The long so-called Genroku period of cultural efflorescence in the cities is considered a high watermark for the arts, etc. When most people think of the culture of Tokugawa period, Japan, uh, it's this period, the Genroku period, with its woodblock prints and kabuki theater and pleasure quarters that comes first to mind. The Tokugawa period saw the development of many of the patterns of life, goods, and industries, which are now generally considered to be prototypically, quote unquote, Japanese. With a growing population and economy, at least in the 17th century, linked by excellent transportation networks, a host of industries developed throughout the countryside, including the production of sake, food staples like miso, soy sauce, vinegar, refined oil, or dried fruits. In the spinning and weaving of silk, cotton, and rougher fabrics, complicated networks of home-based production grew up. Brokers orchestrated as many as a dozen steps in the production process, each with its network of specialized producers. Similar production networks emerged for lacquerware, ceramics, or wooden bowls for everyday use for paper and paper products, for candles, rope, clogs, and fabric dyes, and for ornaments such as combs and hair pieces. This proto-industrialization of the countryside in particular, which included the expansion of wage labor in some quarters and has been characterized as an industrious revolution as opposed to an industrial one uh, because it made full use of available labor, transformed both economy and society. In fact, many regions of the countryside outperformed the cities in both population and economic growth in later Tokugawa. Nevertheless, it's still true that overall the rich got richer and more literate, mobile, and privileged, and the poor lived along as they always had. 
In other words, descriptions of the efflorescent urban culture of Edo and Osaka and the industrious countryside failed to capture a shift in the Tokugawa period around the turn of the 18th century. They hide rising inequality, uh, particularly both within the village, uh, within the villages and between the villages and the cities. Uh, and this was, again, especially true uh, in the latter half of the Tokugawa period. They also failed to uh, show us the uh, uneven benefits of agricultural growth, the uneven burdens of taxation. There were wide gradations in wealth, status, and power backed by the state. Because tax reassessments were infrequent, wealthy peasants were able to open new lands, and they were able to increase their yields, and they found their incomes rising. Peasant unrest was, for this reason and others, on the increase in late Tokugawa. In contrast to early Tokugawa rural uprisings, which were often led by village headmen, those of the later period were frequently directed at those same village headmen. And this was symptomatic, perhaps, of a more general downtrend in social stability from the 18th century on. What had been a, a really enormously successful system in the first century uh, faltered and began to decline in the second. So while urban Japan was increasingly literate, cultured, urbane, Tokugawa Japan overall was also, at least after the first century, a system in crisis. The causes of this crisis were many. Two, however, deserve special attention. Under a system of hereditary leadership, like Tokugawa Japan, um, and uh, hereditary leadership by the utterly obsolete war warrior class, no less, right? Because of course, this is a period of peace. Authority and merit stopped agreeing with each other, right? They became divorced from each other. Additionally, power and authority went through that same split. So what you had was feckless, talentless samurai being accorded greater privilege, at least in theory, than talented uh, townspeople or merchants. On the other hand, merchants uh, were increasingly wielding the power of the purse, often doing so over samurai who kept taking out loans or selling heirlooms or selling privileges in order to maintain an appropriate lifestyle, a lifestyle appropriate to the samurai uh, uh, status. So the warrior class was not only useless, entitled, and with all those swords potentially dangerous, but it was also increasingly disenfranchised, indebted, uh, and sort of down and out on their luck, at least at their lower rungs. The contradictions of late Tokugawa were in part responsible for falling political uh, efficacy. So when harvests failed, for example, as they did repeatedly in the 18th century, and it is important to think about the impact of climate, uh, on history. Uh, this is a really good example of that. Um, but when harvests failed, as they did in the 18th century, the response of government was insufficient and ineffective. And this increased suffering, uh, and that increased anger and disaffection and mistrust. And this also stunted economic growth. And so you can see there's kind of a feedback loop. So in summary, the story of Tokugawa Japan can be told as one of really exceptional peace, stability, and prosperity, especially in the cities, which was then troubled first by inherent systemic contradictions between a hereditary status system and real merit, and also uh, particularly in the later years by uh, natural disasters and the failure to effectively uh, cope with them. By the time the end of the 18th century rolled around, 
the formerly very, very stable and successful Tokugawa system was in a state of perpetual low-grade crisis, which became severe and ultimately fatal in 19. 